Well, welcome everybody to the second semester of How to Get the Most Out of Your Bible. I will remind you what the, the course is about, but everybody should have a notebook. So if you don't have one, you'll have to go out to the table out there and see if they can get you one. Everybody have one? And we're on page 13. It's where we left off. Page 13. Yes? Okay. And, uh, okay, I guess there aren't any extra ones. Then. Sorry. Listen well. You want to look at mine during the talk? No. Oh, look at this. You know what? I don't know how to feel about people being so ready to give up their books. <laughs> Here, take my seat. I'll go out and have a coffee. <laughs> I guess I'll call it generosity. <laughs> so this is How to Get the Most Out of Your Bible. It has three parts to it, and we're in the first part, which comprises the bulk of the course, Survey of the Bible. And we're going to start, as you see at the top of page 13, the New Testament today. And then the second part is interpreting the Bible, and the third part is applying the Bible. We have 12 weeks, counting tonight then, to, to do those. So survey the New Testament, and then look at the interpretation section and the application section. So tonight, page 13, and we start the New Testament. But I remind you that uh, one of the reasons we have a survey class like this is because the Bible can be very intimidating, can be very intimidating because of its antiquity, how old it is, because of its size, and because of its diversity. It has uh, 66 books written over a 1,500-year period by 40 different people. So trying to put that all together can be very difficult for folks. But we can take some of the intimidation out if we recognize that it's really, even though it's got 1,189 chapters and 66 books and all of that, it's really about just uh, three things. I've been pounding those home to you, but it's been about six weeks since we met, so I'll pound it again. It's about, first of all, creation. And in creation, God gives an orientation to his creatures regarding himself and his world and what he expects from us. So creation is orientation or who God is and what he expects from us. But then the Bible story tells us very early on, Genesis chapter 3, about the second thing the Bible is about, and that's the fall, the entrance of sin into God's world. And rather than orientation, it, the, the, it's disorientation, because all that was right in terms of human, humanity's relationship with God and with one another and with their environment, now all of that is distorted. Nothing, nothing's right. And so that's disorientation, or what our problem is. So you've got creation, orientation, who God is, and what he expects from us. The fall, disorientation, what our problem is. And thankfully, the Bible's about a third thing, because if it was left there, we would be in desperate straits. But it's about redemption as well. And we find redemption mentioned in that third chapter of the Bible also, where God is giving consequences to sin, to the man and to the woman and to the serpent and to the environment, to the earth itself. But he says in the midst of that, that I'm going to put enmity between your seed, the serpent, that is Satan, and her seed, the seed of the woman. And you're going to bruise his heel, but he is going to crush your head. And in that, God is given the, giving the first mention of his solution to the problem of sin. And that verse, Genesis 3.15, is sometimes called a proto-evangelium, first gospel. 
the first mention of the good news, that God's going to do something about the problem of sin. And that solution to the problem of sin is going to come through uh, a human being, one who's going to be the seed of the woman. And so now the Bible story begins to look for this one who's going to be the answer to sin. A human being is going to come into the human race who is going to be the answer to sin. And that's why the genealogies then are are given. And you have a short genealogy at the end of Genesis 4. You have a large genealogy in in Genesis 5. And Genesis 5 focuses on uh, the the line of Seth, uh, son of Adam and Eve, and then uh, Noah, and then Shem, and then one of Shem's descendants, uh, Abraham. And in chapter 12 of Genesis, the story is focused on particularly the line of, of Abraham. And from there on, from Genesis chapter 12, the story of the Bible, uh, the first part of your Bible, uh, follows the descendants of Abraham through Isaac, and Jacob, Jacob whose name is changed to Israel, who has 12 sons and the 12 tribes of Israel. And that story then, going forward, is really the story of the life and times of the people through whom the seed would come. The life and times of the people that God has chosen, through whom this seed is going to come, this chosen one is going to come. And their lives, as you read about them in the first part of the Bible, those lives prove the need for this seed to come because they show sinfulness and wickedness and duplicity and all of the human frailties that we all have. So it's the story of the life and times of the people through whom this seed would come and their lives prove the need for him to come. And as it moves forward then, the Bible tells us that specifically not only is the Messiah going to come through the line of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, but of Jacob's sons, specifically he's going to come through the tribe of Judah. And then the lineage is tracked from there through one from the line of Judah through through David. And you read about in the first part of your Bible, the Old Testament, uh, the prophets and the priests and the kings that God brought. And all of them failed. All of the prophets, all of the kings, all of the priests, they all failed. And why they all failed? Because they all had the same problem. Because the solution uh, is not final. And the, the solution will not be final until we are glorified. While we're on this earth, we still we still struggle with sin. And they showed their sin and the fact that they were sons and daughters of, of, of Abraham. And so with all of that, with all the prophets, priests, and kings showing their sinfulness, their frailty, now you come to the New Testament and the birth of the chosen one, the anointed one, the Messiah, the Christ. So going back to your Old Testament, you have the promise of the Mashiach, Hebrew, the Messiah. It means anointed one. And in the New Testament, beginning with this promised seed having now come after all of these years, you have the Christ. Now, Messiah means anointed one in Hebrew. And Christ means anointed one in Greek. So when we say Christ, we're saying he's the Messiah. He's the one that was promised and foretold and predicted in the first part of the, the Bible. And he comes, and according to the predictions of the first part of the Bible, through the prophets like Isaiah, this shall be a sign to you, a virgin shall conceive and shall bear a son, and you will call his name Emmanuel. 
And that verse is quoted in the New Testament, in the very first chapter of the New Testament. Matthew chapter 1 quotes Isaiah chapter 7 and verse 14. And Matthew helpfully translates the name Emmanuel for us. And quotes that, this virgin shall conceive, bear a son, you shall call his name Emmanuel, which being interpreted is God with us. So this one who has now come is not only the anointed one, the promised one. God has come. God has come to, to be with us. And how, did, how is it that God is able to come born into the human race to be this seed promised back in Genesis 3.15? How can he be the solution if he's born into the human race? Because everybody born into the human race has a problem. Well, what's that problem? Sin. And you're, you're born with it. Psalm 51.5. I was sinful, says David, from the time my mother conceived me. So now uh, Mary conceives a a child, but this child's supposed to be the solution to sin. So the way God effects that, the way God does that, is for this to be a virgin. We often call it the virgin birth, but the virgin... It's a virgin conception before it's a virgin birth. And the virgin conception is really important. But the child is not conceived in the normal way. The child is conceived miraculously. Conceived of the Holy Spirit. And it's because of the virgin conception that this anointed one comes into the world without a sin nature. Through the virgin conception. Now, sometimes people make the mistake of thinking that uh, Jesus is the only one who didn't wasn't conceived with a sin nature. And one of the differences between his conception and ours is he didn't have a human father. So the women all conclude <laughs> that means the sin nature comes through the men. <laughs> if you can just get the men out of the equation, we wouldn't have a sin nature. Okay? <laughs> but it's not it's not that the sin nature comes through one or the other, but it is the uniting of in conception. And God breaking that then normal conception process then brings into being one who is not born uh, in uh, in sin. Now, he's born fully human though. He is fully human yet without sin. He is human in every way. He is human in uh, limitations. He sleeps because he gets tired. He rests. So he is God with us, but at the same time, he is fully human. He is God and man in one unique person, the God-man. And the God-man comes through the miracle of the virgin conception and, and birth. And he got his humanity from his mother. Mary contributes his humanity to, to him. And he's, as I say, fully human, so that he could be united to the human race organically related to the human race and serve as a substitute for the human race. He can't be your substitute if he's not human. He can only truly substitute for you and for me if he's a human being. And so God comes truly and fully as a human. And every part of him in his physical existence included is human, including his blood. Did you know that? That he had human blood now the reason I bring that up is because 
some people don't know that. And they are well-intended, but they inadvertently make Jesus something less than human. And if you make Jesus something less than human, you have now, you have now eliminated his ability to be our substitute. So I hold in my hand this old book by someone named M.R. Dehan. Some of you know the Dehan family? And the Dehans uh, founded Radio Bible Class, and Day of Discovery, and Our Daily Bread, all of that. Some really helpful stuff, very helpful stuff. But uh, the patriarch of that family, M.R. Dehan, was a medical doctor. And he wrote this book called The Chemistry of the Blood. And in it, he tries to make the case that Jesus' blood was not human. So let me just uh, read for you what he says. Mary nourished the body of Jesus, and he became the seed of David according to the flesh. The The Holy Spirit contributed the blood of Jesus. It is sinless blood. It is divine blood. It is precious blood, for there has never been any other like it. Then he goes on to say, instead of being conceived by a human father, he was conceived by a divine father. As a result, biologically, he had divine blood, sinless blood. And then he, and then he goes on. So he makes much of the fact that Jesus had this different kind of blood. Uh, and as I say, that uh, creates a real problem for us in terms of his substitutionary life and death for us. There's nothing in the Bible that tells you that Jesus' blood was anything but human blood. But where do you think that comes from? Why is it that Dehan and others over the years have thought they've needed to separate the blood of Jesus somehow and make it something different? Anybody, does anybody know where that's coming from? Would it be, you know, uh, the blood of the Lamb from yeah. the Old Testament? When you yeah. And the doorposts? Yeah. You know, the Bible speaks much of the blood of the blood of Christ. And uh, what the blood of Christ accomplished. And uh, it's sometimes spoken of as, as incorruptible blood. And so the idea is the blood itself has this value. But as you do a study through your Bible on the shedding of blood, the shedding of blood is a way of saying sacrificial death. And so when it talks about that, it's talking about the, the sacrificial death that Jesus gave up, gave up for us. And so uh, the, the blood of Christ and every part of Christ, his fingernails, his eyelashes, <laughs> all of it, was fully human, but he was fully God at the same time so that he could be our substitute. And God brings all of this about through the miracle of the virgin conception and what is called the incarnation. Incarnation. That is the uh, in flesh is what that means. It comes from a Latin word, uh, carne is Latin for flesh or meat. So if you have chili con carne, you have chili with what? With meat, okay? That's where that comes from. And so incarnation uh, means to in flesh, to become flesh, to become human. And so John speaks of that. Uh, John starts his gospel with, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. The Word was God. Now, it's tricky, you know, to to try to, in a few short phrases, explain a person who is absolutely unique and who is God, but who is also one person of the Godhead. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. 
And so how does John do this? He starts out saying, in the beginning was the Word, but notice the Word was both with God and was God. And that's his way of saying that this is one person of the Godhead who is with God, but he's fully God. Fully God the Son. And he created all things, verse 2 of John 1. He created all things. (laughs) Now, you would think it would be enough uh, to just leave it at that. He created all things. But then verse 3, John goes on and says, And without him was not anything made that has been made. (laughs) Now, why is he going to such pains to say, And he created all things, and nothing has been made without him. Well, here's why. John, in those first three verses, is going out of his way very succinctly and very eloquently to show that this one who has been incarnated, this one who has become flesh, is and always has been God. And he is not created. And he has never had a beginning. In fact, he created all the stuff that had a beginning. Apart from him, nothing that has been made was made that has been made. So, Phyllis, you were... No. no. Okay. So, uh, it's important for John to do that. Because later in the history of the church, you're going to have heretics uh, who teach that Jesus is a created being. And one of those heretics was a guy named Arius. And Arian, in fact, Arius' infamous statement was, was this. Quote, there was a time when he was not. There was a time when Jesus didn't exist, that he was created, a created being, said Arius. And you know who the modern version of that is. It's the Jehovah's Witnesses. They teach that Jesus is a created being. They had to butcher the word. Sure. He's not the eternal God. So John makes it very clear in just three verses. But then he identifies this one who he calls the Word in those first three verses. In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. But then you go down to verse 14 of John 1, and John says, And the Word became flesh. The Word was incarnated. The one who was God became man. And he didn't substitute humanity for divinity. He added divinity humanity to divinity that he was already God and now he became God and man not man instead of God he became both God and man in this one unique person the God man Christ Jesus so that is when we talk about the birth of Christ that was that's what we have going on there's a lot happening there isn't there <laughs> in the virgin conception and his humanity being contributed to us. And so it's so important that you have two genealogies of Jesus' birth given, one in Matthew chapter 1, one in Luke chapter 3. Matthew chapter 1 and Luke chapter 3, and they both give a genealogy, but if you were to read those genealogies, you would find uh, some, different, some different names there. Now, now, why is that? Well, Matthew, that starts your New Testament, Starts in chapter 1 with this genealogy, but as you read through the 28 chapters of Matthew, you find that the purpose for which he wrote his narrative, his story about the life and times of the seed who has come, the Messiah, the Christ, that his purpose is to show that he is the Jewish Messiah. 
And so in his genealogy, he includes the patriarchs. As a matter of fact, he starts with Abraham. And he makes it a point to mention David and Solomon and so on to show that Jesus is the the legal heir to the title of Messiah. But then in Luke, in Luke chapter 3, Luke takes a, a different branch through the genealogy of Jesus. And he's emphasizing his, his full humanity. In fact, in Luke's genealogy, he goes all the way back to Adam. Matthew doesn't do that. As I said, he starts with Abraham. But, but Luke goes all the way back to Adam because Luke is, is seeking to emphasize the connection that Jesus has to the, to the entire human race. So this one comes who is God, becomes man, is the God-man. Now, we'll move on from that in a second, but how long will he be the God-man? He's, and he's, he's the God-man. Uh, it's not a question you necessarily often think about. But having joined humanity to what he had always been, divinity, he will be the God-man going forward. And in fact, even after his earthly ministry, his death on the cross, his resurrection, you remember he rises, he still has this body. He still has this human body. He still says, touch me. And even in his glorified body, he still has, he still has a body. And then decades later, Paul will write about him and say in 1 Timothy 2 and verse 5, 1 Timothy 2, 5, that there is but one mediator between God and man. And do you remember what the next phrase is? The man, Christ Jesus. So he's still the man. After, in more ways than one. But he's still human. God and man, even after his earthly ministry, after he's been glorified, after he's risen back to the Father. So there is the, the birth of Christ that the New Testament uh, begins with. Then you see on page 13, the move to Egypt. After some time passed, the Magi, or wise men, arrived from the east, followed a light in the sky which directed them to Jerusalem. When Herod learned that the scribes and chief priests from them that the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem, he directed the wise men to go there. Herod planned to murder Jesus because the wise men called him the king of the Jews. When the Magi did not return, he had all the boys of Bethlehem, two years old and younger, killed. Joseph was warned. And so he fled with his family to Egypt. Now, why is that? Why does that matter? Well, do you remember? And and I would encourage you as you read through your New Testament that you seek to connect what you're reading in your New Testament with your Old Testament, the first part, because the first part is preparatory. So, do you all remember uh, an incident and the slaughtering of of children? In the first part of your body. And that was the whole Pharaoh uh, incident and the, the killing of the, the, first, the, the firstborn, and, uh, or the, the killing of the Hebrew children that Moses was saved from, rescued from. So this is now, this is now telling us that Jesus is the new Moses, that, that you revere Moses from the first part of your Bible. But now this is an incident very much like the one that occurred in the life of Moses is now occurring in the, in the life of Jesus. Jesus is the new Moses. But 
take heart that even though the Messiah, the Christ, has come into a world of violence, and he has to escape this violence even as a, a child, and ultimately this violence will take his life at the end of the book of Matthew, Matthew includes this, uh, I'm convinced, because he's going to say at the end of his gospel, in Matthew 28, the very end, we have the Great Commission, that now this, this news and this message is going to spread throughout the world. And Jesus says to his apostles, you guys are going to go and spread my message throughout a world that you know is violent. How do you know it's violent? My life proves it. I had to be saved from and rescued from violence as a, as a baby, and, you, and, I, and I was crucified. And now I'm sending you guys out as lambs to the slaughter. But I want you to know that the message is going to go forward in this violent world and, and in spite of this violent world. And that's part of why at the end when Jesus says, go and make disciples of all nations. You know, and if you're the, if you're the, the first followers, if it hadn't been for the fact that you saw him raised, <laughs> you'd be quaking in your boots. Because he's telling you to go out and do what I and represent me, and you saw what happened to me. But go and make disciples of all nations, but they're emboldened to go, partly because they've seen that the resurrection has overcome this violence and death. And then he says, and surely I am with you always, even to the very end of the age. So it starts in violence, it ends with the death, uh, nearly ends with the death of Jesus, and then his resurrection and glorification. And in all of that, the message is communicated that the gospel is going to go forward despite the world's attempts to snuff it out. Then you have the return to, to Nazareth. After Herod's death, an angel appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, telling him to return to Israel. So he, Mary, and Jesus went back to their former hometown. And really the next you find is Jesus in Jerusalem teaching in the temple when he's 12. And you see there the verse we have in at the end of uh, number four, Luke 2, 31 to 52. And Luke, in verses 31 to 52, tells you about Jesus being there at the temple at the age of 12. And he talks about the episode there where he was confounding the elders in the, in the temple. You remember that. Uh, but then you come to verse 52, and then he just says, and Jesus grew in wisdom and in stature. Now, in that one line, he grew in wisdom and stature. He covers about 18 years. Because the next time you see him, he's doing his public ministry. And he's 30. So he goes from 12, and then you get this one line, he grew in wisdom and stature, and Luke just compresses about 18 years into that. And you have 12 years that we don't aren't told anything about either other than him then showing up and confounding the, the elders. Now, I mentioned to you, I don't expect anybody to remember, but I mentioned to you just in the last session before the break, semester break, uh, about Jesus going to the, uh, the temple at age 12. And in all likelihood, he was there for his, what Jewish boys went to the temple for, for his bar mitzvah, to become a son of the law, son of the, the commandment. And... Uh, now, the reason I point this out to you about Luke compressing in this language 
is Luke actually wrote two books in your Bible. He wrote the Gospel of Luke, but he also wrote the book of Acts. And when we finish with the life of Jesus uh, this week or and, and, and certainly by next week, then we're going to move from the Gospels then to the fifth book of your Bible, the book of Acts, written by the same Luke. And it's important to understand that this is the way Luke writes. He compresses a lot of time into just a few phrases, a few sentences. And if you don't get that, you'll read through the book of Acts and you'll go, wow, stuff is just happening all the time, you know? And the truth is, the book of Acts is 28 chapters, but it covers decades. But Luke just compresses a ton of stuff into just a few in just a few lines. So that can give the impression in the book of Acts, and it has fooled some people. The stuff's just happening, and so you read the book of Acts, man, there's just stuff happening all the time. And then you come to church. What is that? I mean, where's the book of Acts? You know, they're always having things happening. I mean, people are being raised from the dead, and people are being, and all kinds of things are just happening, just happening. You know, this can't be the real deal. So we've got to find something. And then people go off to, you know, find, restore the early church and all of that. Because they're reading the book of Acts and they're thinking that this is just compressed and this is just happening and this is the way it's supposed to be. And forget that after the book of Acts, you got all these letters of your New Testament that describe what life in the church is, is really like. And that sounds much more like the kind of life that, that we have here. Yes? I think the danger in that, though, is that people tend to manufacture you know, their restoration of their idea. Oh, no doubt. Yeah, yeah, amen <laughs> to that. And so there have been all these restoration kinds of movements. You know, um, don't get me started. <laughs> but, you know, people who just say, we're just, you know, being the New Testament church. By that, mean, they mean the, the book of Acts and all that. Well, you know, no offense to John Calvin, but good luck with that. <laughs> okay. Um, becoming precisely like the early church. Um, and I'll, I'll get into why. Our church is not intended to be precisely like the early church a little bit later. Not today. All right, then uh, number five. Then you have the baptism by John at the age of 30. And why is this baptism important? Well, you remember that at Jesus' baptism, the Holy Spirit uh, comes upon him. And the Holy Spirit comes upon Jesus. Now, the, the Holy Spirit is not regenerating Jesus. You know, when we come to Christ, we are born again. We're given spiritual life. Jesus is not being given spiritual life. He has spiritual life. He's not sinful. So why is the Holy Spirit coming upon Jesus? Well, it's to, it's to empower him and identify him as the anointed one in the beginning of this public ministry. And that goes back to the first part of your Bible as well. Do you remember that these prophets, or these or these uh, these priests would be would be anointed, the king, and the, the king would be anointed. And they would be anointed with oil as a symbol of the Holy Spirit. And that's that's called that's called the theocratic anointing. 
That is the anointing to lead in the theocracy, the, the nation, the theocratic anointing. So the Holy Spirit empowers the individual to do this, to do this task. Now, the individual doing the task is empowered to do that until they're not doing it anymore. So in that sense, they have the, the Holy Spirit's power to do this task until the task is done, until the, or until they're removed from doing it. That is what explains Psalm uh, 51, Psalm 51 and verse 11, where David in that entire psalm is talking about his sin and in repentance for his sin with Bathsheba, he says, Against you and against you only have I sinned. And then you get down to verse 11, and he says, he asks the Lord, remove not, do you remember, your Holy Spirit from me. And David is not asking, hey, don't make me lose my salvation. He's saying, I'm asking you, Lord, in your mercy, even though I have sinned against you and ultimately against the nation and the people, I'm asking you not to remove me from my place of leadership for which the Holy Spirit has empowered me and anointed me to do this. So Jesus is anointed by the Holy Spirit to carry out carry out this work. And then you have the temptation of Satan. Temptation of Satan. And... The reason this is important is because this is, of course, the same Satan who, in the form of the serpent, uh, tempted the first Adam. And the Bible refers to Jesus as the last Adam in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. He's referred to as the last Adam, sometimes called the second Adam. He's the last Adam, but there's only been two. Okay? So he's the second Adam and the last Adam. So you have the first Adam, and then you have the the second Adam, the last Adam. And both of them represent more than themselves. Adam represented the entire human race. Jesus represents us in his life of righteousness and in his death on on the cross. And so that's why he's called the second Adam, the last Adam, and his representation. And so here in his temptation now, Jesus succeeds... At the very beginning of his earthly ministry, he succeeds where the first Adam failed. Adam's tempted and he fails. The second Adam is tempted and he succeeds. And right at the very beginning, you then have the hint that this is the one who's going to crush the head of the serpent. Because he defeats the serpent where the first Adam did not. And he continues to defeat the serpent throughout his life on earth and the ultimate crushing blow is on the cross where he defeats the power of of sin now that's why you will read later in your new testament things like philippians chapter 2 philippians chapter 2 and this passage that we're familiar with, many of us are familiar with, but let me um, let me read it for you. Philippians 
Philippians chapter 2 that says, Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, beginning in verse 5. The NIV says in verse 5 through verse 11, Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who, being in very nature God. You just stop there. That's all the stuff we had already talked about. He's God. He remains God. And though he was in very nature, he's God. He did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. So he remains God. But now there's going to be a change in his relationship. Because the next verse goes on to say he made himself nothing. Taking the very nature of of a servant being made in human likeness. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself, and he became obedient to death. Now, in the temptation, Jesus succeeds where Adam failed. And throughout his life, he continues to succeed and is is continually obedient throughout his earthly life. He's obedient to death throughout his Life and even to the end to death. Even death on a cross. So those verses are saying this one who was God and became man succeeds fully in obedience. And then it says, verse 9, therefore, read the therefore part in a minute. What's after that? But the therefore, the word therefore is really cool. Because it's connecting now that obedience. God became man and fully obeyed even to death on a cross. And therefore, because of that, God exalted him to the highest place. You see, he earned the right now to rule the human race because he did what Adam was supposed to do. Did you guys know we were supposed to do that? We were supposed to obey and we were supposed to rule and to reign for God. Did you know that? It's all true. I wouldn't make these things up. (laughs) And Jesus did it. Therefore, God has exalted him to the highest place. And he has given him the name that is above every name. That at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow and every tongue confess that Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. Jesus did what we were supposed to do. That's why you'll hear me say a lot, probably too much because it gets old, but it's really fascinating if you just think about it. Jesus lived the life that we were supposed to live. In fact, since you asked, Hebrews 2, Hebrews chapter 2, teaches this very thing. This is the life we were supposed to live. Hebrews 2 and verse 5. It's not to angels that he has subjected the world to come about which we are speaking. But there's a place where someone has said, What is man that you are mindful of him? The son of man that you care for him. You made him a little lower than the angels. You crowned him 
with glory and honor and put everything under his feet. Now, let me stop there. What is that? What is that that the writer of Hebrews is, is quoting? He's quoting the first part of your Bible. He's quoting Psalm number eight. And Psalm number eight is you, you read that if you're not careful, you can say and you read the son of man and you think of Jesus because he was called in the Gospels, the son of man. So you read that and you think it's talking about Jesus. It's not talking about Jesus. It's talking about humanity. It's quoting Psalm 8. Psalm 8 is saying, this is what we were made to be. Humanity was made a little lower than the angels and we were made to to be this. And you crowned him. You crowned humanity with glory and honor and put everything under his feet. And then it goes on to say, in putting everything under him, God left nothing that is not subject to him. God left nothing that's not subject to humanity. He made Adam to rule for him. And then the next phrase says this. Yet at present, we do not see everything subject to him. Well, there's an, there's an understatement. Because what you have in those preceding verses is creation. You have the orientation. You have what God expects us to do. He made us to do this. And then in that one phrase, yet at present we do not see everything subject to him. You have a transition to the fall. We have not done what we were made to do. We have not ruled for God. We have not used what God has given for God, for God's purposes. So what's to be done? Humanity has failed. The next verse says this. But we see Jesus. You see, humanity hasn't done it, but here's the cool thing. We see Jesus. There's redemption. Right in this this one few verses, you have creation, fall, and redemption. But we see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels, now crowned with glory and honor because he suffered death. Because he obeyed where everyone else disobeyed, and now we see him crowned with glory and honor. Because he was obedient, God has exalted him. He did what we were supposed to do. So back to page 13. Why is this temptation important? Because it's starting the life, the the ministry of Jesus with him succeeding where Adam fails, and he continues to do this throughout his his ministry. Then there's the first disciples after the temptation Jesus returned to the area where John the Baptist was baptizing he met John and Andrew there were disciples they were disciples of John the Baptist but now began to follow Christ next he chose Peter Philip and Nathaniel and then he went to a wedding in Cana where he turned water into wine it's his first recorded miracle so he chooses his uh, first uh, followers and they're called here as first disciples but they are the apostles. And I like to make sure that when we talk about the 12 and then the 11, that we understand that they are the apostles. Disciples are followers. They became the first followers of Jesus. But we are then disciples as well. 
Everyone who's a believer is a disciple. But not every disciple is an apostle. So let me put it to you this way. Every apostle is a disciple. But not every disciple is an apostle. Okay. So these guys were both disciples, followers, but they were also apostles. And that is they were special emissaries to do the bidding of Jesus and to start his mission and his church. He chose these guys specifically. Sunday in the worship service, I mentioned some of his words to them on the night before he was crucified. And he says, the Holy Spirit's going to guide you into all truth. He's going to bring to your remembrance everything that I have commanded you. And then you come later in your New Testament to Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 20, Ephesians 2.20. And it says the church is built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets. So the apostles have this foundational role in the mission of establishing Christ's church. And, you know, you read, that's why the book of Acts that we'll see in the next week, the book of Acts, the full title is the Acts of who? The Acts of the Apostles. So these are important guys. And they had this foundational role. You've heard me say, I think we said it last semester, but you know, you get to the end of the Bible, the last book of the Bible, second last chapter of the Bible, chapter 21 of Revelation. And John, who wrote Revelation, is given this vision of the heavenly city and the new Jerusalem. And the dimensions of the walls and the city are given. And the foundation, it is said, has 12 sides on which are written the names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. So special guys indeed. I mean, nothing special about them, but a special task for them that we don't have that they they accomplished. And then there's the born-again discussion with Nicodemus. And why this born-again discussion with uh, with Nicodemus? Well, one of the things that um, these stories, these encounters that Jesus has with people throughout the, the Gospels are designed to show us is that every person from every walk of life needs the Messiah. And so you find these encounters with people, different kinds of people from different kinds of backgrounds. And no matter their background, they all need the same thing. They all have the same problem, and they all need the same thing. And to have this guy, Nicodemus, as an example of that is a stark example indeed. Because you remember who he was. He's a Pharisee, not just a Pharisee, he's a member of the Sanhedrin, the ruling council of the Jews. Jesus says, you are the teacher in Israel. You're not just a teacher, you are the man in terms of the teacher in Israel. But Nicodemus, when Jesus says to him, you must be born again, this guy is completely baffled. And he says, you are the teacher in Israel, Jesus chides him, and you don't understand these things? And he's showing him that that you need, he's showing him that he personally needs it. He's showing us, as we read it, that no matter who you are, no matter how religious you are, no matter your status, no matter, you need the same. You have the same problem, you need the same thing. 
Now, in that story of Nicodemus, it's in John chapter 3. But it actually begins with the last phrase of John chapter 2. Because here's what uh, the last verse says of chapter 2. John 2, 25. It said, He, Jesus, did not need man's testimony about man, for he knew what was in a man. So the chapter 2 ends with a statement that Jesus knows what's in man. And the very next line says, Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus. So chapter 2 ends with, He knows what's in a man. And here's an example of one. Now there was a man. And quite an example it is. It's this guy, the Sanhedrin, the a ruler among the Jews, the teacher in Israel, and he needs to be born again. So these stories and these encounters are designed to show every person, no matter where they come from, they all have the same problem because they are all from the same stream of sinful humanity, including this guy. Now, I say chapter 2 ends that way. He knew what was in a man, now there was a man. And you probably wouldn't see that if you are just going chapter and verse, like let's read chapter 3 today. So I'm using this opportunity to remind you that when the Bible was written, there were no chapters. So when John's gospel was written, that's exactly the way it would flow. He knew what was in a man, now there was a man. And you would see the connection. So the chapters and verses are good for us because it helps us find stuff. But it can mess you up because if you're not careful, it can it can break the flow. Now, our translators have done a good job most of the time of breaking at appropriate points. But sometimes you'll miss that at the end of one and the beginning of another. I'll give you one other example of that. Then I'll come back to Nicodemus. But one other example of that is in Matthew, uh, in Matthew chapter 17. And in Matthew chapter 17, you have, in verse 1, the story of what we call the transfiguration. And Jesus appears to Peter, James, and John and gives a foreshadowing of what his glory is going to look like. Now, he hasn't died on the cross yet. He hasn't raised from the dead. He doesn't have his glorified body. But he's miraculously transfigured before them. And... Verse 17, chapter 17 and verse 1 begins to tell us about that. It says, verse 1, After six days Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John, the brother of James, and led them up a high mountain by themselves. There he was transfigured before them. His face shone like the sun. His clothes became white as the light. Just think about being there. Those three guys. But that's verse 1 of chapter 17. The end of chapter 16 says this. Jesus says, I tell you the truth, some who are standing here will not taste death before they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. And then the next 
verse says, after six days, he took them to a high mountain and was transfigured before them. So if you just leave that off, you're wondering, well, when did they do that? And if you're just reading it without chapters and verses, the next thing is six days and they see this happen a week later. And Peter was one of them. And you find Peter saying later, many years later, as he writes two letters of your New Testament in 2 Peter chapter 1. 2 Peter chapter 1. In verse 16. 2 Peter 1, 16. So this is Peter who was one of the three who saw Jesus transfigured. And, Jesus, and Peter says, we did not follow cleverly invented stories when we told you about the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, why doesn't Peter have to follow cleverly invented stories? Because Peter's seen it. He's seen the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. And then he goes on to say that. But we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. So Peter was one of these eyewitnesses of his majesty transfigured before him. And now he's able to testify to that, that later. So that, you know, be careful about the chapter thing is what I'm telling you. That's the moral of everything I was just telling you. Be, be careful about the chapter thing. Now, back to Nicodemus. So Jesus comes to this religious guy, and these encounters are designed to show everybody from every walk of life needs, has the same problem, needs the same solution including people like this. And he says to them, you must be born again. And that word that's translated again is, is not primarily about being born a second time. Now, the new birth is obviously a, a subsequent birth. <laughs> so it's obviously, that, that's why it's new. And it's after your physical birth. So it is a second birth. So that's all true, but the word born again there means literally born from above. And when you are born from above, yes, you are born a second time. You are born spiritually. You are given new birth. But the key here is that this birth comes from above. This birth comes from the spirit. This is spiritual birth now, where you're given spiritual life as opposed to the first birth where you're given where you're given physical life. And who determines when that happens? Who gets to determine when spiritual life from above is given to somebody? Now wait to be careful now. You guys are saying, you know, God, Jesus, they, okay? <laughs> happens to be right. So, you know, take a breath. It's all okay. You're right. But well, wait a minute, I thought I was the one. I thought I thought I thought I held the key. Wait a second, I thought Jesus was standing out the door, outside the door knocking. Because I know that because I had a picture of that <laughs> in my basement when I was a kid. And there's Jesus. And I always, as a kid, felt sorry for poor Jesus. <laughs> He's standing. I mean, we got this thing on the wall, and there's Jesus. It's a dark night, and he's at this door, and he's his feet 
are like two inches off the ground, which was always weird for me. So I'm always weirded out as a kid by that. And then he's got the crazy halo thing. So when you're a kid, it's a wonder our kids are not completely warped, okay? With the kind of pictures we show them of Jesus. He doesn't walk on the ground. He's got this thing. And none of this is true, okay? But that's the pictures. And then he's standing out there knocking on the door, and he's and his hand, I remember, his hand is not like, you know, I'm beating on the door. His hand is like this effeminate sort of, you know, kind of, yeah. And I'm just feeling, there he is, poor Jesus out there trying to get in. And there's no knob on the outside. That's a key part of the painting, no knob. Jesus can't get in until you let him in. Okay? So who's holding the cards here? See, and that's what we all think. We hold the cards. And in this encounter with Nicodemus, where you got to be born from above, in verse 8, Jesus says, The wind blows wherever it pleases. And the word wind is the same word for spirit. He's using an illustration of how the Spirit gives life. The Spirit blows, the wind blows wherever it pleases. Same Greek word, wind and Spirit. You hear its sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it is going. Going so it is with everyone born of the Spirit. So this is one of the reasons, friends, I get a little worked up with people who have a version of the Gospel that says it depends on, it's, it's about you. And it's about you letting God. You know what? Be careful about let God language. God doesn't need me to let him do anything. And so be very careful about the idea that I control God in any way. And then you could just see the extreme versions of this in the name it, claim it kinds of preachers. You tell God what to do. Uh uh. Phyllis. I love, I love the verse that says that no one comes to the Father except the Spirit drawing. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, God's in control of this, right? Now, um, these encounters, I want to give you, I'm going to give you one other one similar to uh, Nicodemus, and then, um, and then we've got to quit here in a minute. But in Luke chapter 18, Luke chapter 18, you have the encounter of the rich young ruler. Luke 18. And in that encounter with the rich young ruler, this uh, arrogant young man comes to Jesus and says, Good master, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said, uh, Allow me to come into your heart. Did he say that? No. Okay. Let's back up then. What did he say? You know, because we get an evangelistic opportunity like that. Because the guy's saying, how do I get to heaven? How do I have eternal life? So here's Jesus' answer to him. Now remember the guy started out, good master, how can I inherit eternal life? What must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus gives him a question. Why do you call me good? There is no one good except God. Well, all right. Now, what's he doing? He's showing everybody has the same problem, including you, rich young ruler. 
And how's he doing that? This guy said, good master. And Jesus says, why do you call me good? There's no one good except God. And there's only one of us standing here who's God. And it ain't you. So he's immediately put this guy on. So if this guy noticed, you're not good. So good master, what can I do to inherit eternal life? He's telling him in just that one question, there's nothing you can do to inherit eternal life. Here's why, because you're not good. And the reason you need me is because you're not good. But keep the commandments for starters. And then the young man says, well, all of these, which ones? I've done wrong. And then Jesus says, go and sell all you have. And the man went away sorrowful, for he had many goods. So Jesus is showing that every person from every walk of life is sinful. And they all need exactly the same thing. And he does that throughout these encounters. The next encounter we're going to see from Jesus is with a woman at the well from Samaria. But we'll do that next week.